Welcome to our second panel. As mentioned at the end of the first panel, we are going to issues of free exercise and uh, the religious, religion clauses of the First Amendment. Um, these issues, too, are at the forefront of our politics. I will only say very briefly by way of introduction, I always think of James Madison's comment uh, at the time uh, before the, the Constitution that uh, his comments on a religious conscience, which were the idea that uh, you have a right to decide your relationship to God or no relationship at all, though he didn't say that, and that religious, when you enter the social contract, you do not give up control or any kind of uh, regulation of that in the new government. So therefore, government has really nothing to do with religious conscience. As time has gone on, of course, that's become somewhat more complicated, but that will be the general background of the founding. And Mr. Madison, uh, the author of the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, we will begin uh, our uh, second panel with uh, some very interesting remarks on Roger Williams by John M. Barry. John M. Barry is distinguished scholar at Tulane University. The Society of American Historians named his book Rising Tide, The Great Mississippi Flood of 1927 and How It Changed America, the year's best work on American history. And in 2005, the New York Public Library named it one of the 50 best books in the preceding 50 years. The National Academy of Sciences named his book The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history, the year's best book on science and medicine. After Hurricane Katrina, he served for six years on both the levy board responsible for protecting New Orleans and the agency responsible for statewide hurricane protection. And he advised both the Bush and Obama White Houses, the UN and the private sector on disaster preparedness and resilience. His most recent book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul, Church, State, and the Birth of Liberty, was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and winner of the New England Society Book Award. As you can see, he is an extremely apt person for our topic today uh, on religious liberty and the First Amendment. John, welcome back to the Cato Institute. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. I uh, have high regard for Cato. Uh, and thanks for mentioning the uh, experience I have with disasters, both living through some and writing about them. And uh, the hope is that the speech is not a disaster. Uh, anyway, I was asked to uh, talk about the issues that I uh, wrote about, uh, which covered the development of the ideas leading to the modern conception of both religious liberty and individual freedom, uh, which I might add are inextricably linked. So I guess I'm supposed to provide context since this, most of this is almost 400 years ago. Uh, that will let us, as Alba Wendell Holmes said, you know, see as far as one may and feel the great forces that are behind every detail. Uh, after I talk about those forces, I'll try to get into where I think we are and where we're going. Uh, my first point is that freedom is a very nice concept, but it's kind of vague. If you think about it in the real world, uh, you might define freedom as the degree to which the, those in power choose to limit their control of the weak. Uh, that's a choice. 
no external force has the ability to control the powerful. They have to choose to limit their own power. My second point is that there is a huge difference between a nation and a government. That's important. Uh, third, as I think we all recognize, the founders of our nation did not distribute power equitably in the government that they created, not, a, not even close. But they compensated by setting up a government that strives to limit the powerful's control of the weak, to maximize freedom. And I think the First Amendment reflects that effort better than anything else in the Constitution. It's no accident that freedom of religion and freedom of speech, press, and assembly are linked in the amendment. Neither is it an accident that freedom comes first. My fourth point is that the amendment did not evolve from any intellectual exercise, not from any theory. It was a specific response to specific historical events, which were crucial in how the founders defined the relationship of church and state and the individual in the state. Those events actually started with Henry VIII, the first of five straight English monarchs who burned at the stake those who dissented from their religious beliefs. Worse, those beliefs whipsawed back and forth. England was Catholic, then Protestant, then Catholic, then Protestant. King James comes in. He's nominally a Protestant, but he's distrusted by many English Protestants. Both his parents were Catholics. He married his son to the, a Catholic. He moved the Anglican church closer and closer to Catholicism. He was the target of an assassination attempt by Catholics, but he stopped enforcing laws which persecuted Catholics and started in applying those laws to Protestant dissenters and threatened to hang Puritans. Equally important, James injected the concept of the divine right of kings into English jurisprudence. This was new. It had not been there before. His apologist said, quote, the monarch is the law speaking, that the king, quote, is above the law by his absolute power, unquote, that, quote, though it is coronation, he take an oath not to alter the laws of the land, yet this oath notwithstanding, he may alter or suspend any particular law for reason of state. That last line may sound a little familiar. Uh, at the same time, on the continent, virtually all the monarchies were moving toward absolutism. Uh, the, uh, Louis XIII dissolved the French parliament and didn't meet again for more than 150 years. The Spanish parliament was in steep decline. The smaller principalities uh, in Europe going in the same direction. In Eng the English were well aware of what was going on on the continent. Enter Sir Edward Cook, who's probably the greatest jurist in English history. He set precedents, including the judicial review of legislative acts, uh, no double jeopardy for criminal trials, the principle that you cannot punish someone for their thoughts. And he pioneered the use of habeas corpus as we know it today. Uh, habeas corpus had actually been used to expand crown power to tell some distant sheriff that he had to prove that someone in prison was violating 
the King's Law. Cook started applying habeas corpus against the Crown and against, uh, there was a parallel court system that the church had and against the uh, church. But Cook, whom you may never have heard of, every American over the age of five knows his most famous ruling from the bench. The house of every man is as his castle. Cook also had great personal courage. Uh, when the king finally dismissed him from the bench and threw him in the Tower of London, he said, if the king desires my head, he knows where he may find it. Uh, he did get out of the tower and in parliament uh, led the opposition to crown power. James' son Charles becomes king. He's more aggressive than his father, both politically and moving the church toward Catholicism and in persecuting Protestant dissenters. Set off a tremendous clash with Parliament and, of course, eventually the Civil War, and he lost. He was, of course, beheaded. But long before that, Cook wrote a document called the Petition of Rights, uh, which is a precedent for the habeas corpus clause in our Constitution and for the amendments in our Bill of Rights. Uh, Cook also got this through both houses of parliament unanimously, forced Charles to accept it, uh, but almost immediately Charles began violating it, exerted more pressure than ever on dissenters. He began using the star chamber uh, in new ways. The star chamber actually had been called the poor man's court, where he might have right without paying money. It ignored most legal procedures, but in the pursuit of, it was, it was called a court of equity. Uh, Charles used that lack of legal procedure, turned it into the epithet that we know uh, the Star Chamber has today. As I said, the church had its own court system. It was imprisoning laymen, even ordering execution. At one point, one of Charles's bishops says, quote, before God, it will not be well until we have our own inquisition. One parliamentary leader said in reply that he had wanted to, quote, postpone the business of religion to concentrate on our rights. But he now saw that, quote, never was there a more clear connection between the matter of religion and the matter of rights. Charles dismissed parliament in a chaotic scene with soldiers storming the doors and arresting parliamentary leaders. This was the setting a decade before the Civil War. Not surprisingly, in response to this pressure, thousands of Puritans fled to America. One of them was Roger Williams. Williams happened to have been Cook's amanuensis. Cook, very close. Cook referred to him as my son. Williams had accompanied him to court, to meetings with both James and Charles, to the Star Chamber. He was physically present when the soldiers stormed the parliament. Cook's views on the law ran in his veins, and he developed his own very deep understanding both of law and of power. He was also a distinguished Puritan minister. He was so well regarded that literally the day he arrived in Boston, he was offered the ministry of the Boston Church. 
which he rejected because it was not pure enough. That was his first of many conflicts with Massachusetts authorities, who were determined to build a new Jerusalem for the glory of God. God informed every aspect of life in Massachusetts, even their liberty code. They had, they wrote what was called the Body of Liberties, which incorporated Magna Carta, incorporated the petition of right, but had a codicil that said, quote, no, that no man could be punished, quote, unless by virtue of some express law, that's the Magna Carta and petition of right, that you couldn't arbitrarily imprison somebody, here's the codicil, or in case of a defect in the law, by the word of God. In other words, they just thrown out their entire legal code. Somebody could point to the, something in the Bible and say, "Is a vile, you did something violating scripture, you could find your ears cut off, whipped, banished, whatever. Williams also wanted a godly society, but he violently disagreed over basing law and scripture or using government to compel belief. His position derived not only from Cook, but from scripture, from a particular passage in Matthew, uh, which Williams interpreted as allowing error to exist. Ironically, Augustine used the same passage to justify uh, executing heretics and blasphemers. But in fact, the very fact that the uh, scripture was open to different interpretations left open the question, who decides who's right? Who enforces a decision? If the state enforces it, you're talking about the state, a politician, making a decision about God. The state is now judging God. And of course, humans made errors. It followed then that nobody should impose their will on anyone else. To do so, Williams called monstrous partiality. He knew that when you mix religion and politics, you get politics. He concluded only the complete separation of church and state could prevent corruption of the church and prevent forcing innocence to accept error. So he rejected the state's power to insert itself between humans and God. He was a minister in Salem. He was very popular. His views began to get traction. He was, a, as I said, highly regarded, known for being extremely devout, articulate. <coughs> Massachusetts magistrates felt he was a threat to their order, ordered him to not preach publicly on these matters. He could keep the views as long as he kept them to himself. Well, what good is thinking something if you can't say it. He refused. He was banished. When they banished you in Massachusetts, if you came back, you risked execution. They did, in fact, execute some people who returned after banishment. Uh, he fled, founded Providence, and there his views matured further. He knew all the precedents. Uh, there, he wasn't the first to argue for toleration. There were the Anabaptists, Castilio, Grotius, and others. He was extremely well-educated, brilliant linguist. He filtered knowledge of this history through his direct and very personal understanding at the highest levels of both law 
and political power and combined it all in a new way that went beyond any precedent is expressed in uh, the very simple document, the Founding Compact for Providence. Every other founding document in the New World, whether Swedish, Dutch, Italian, Spanish, English, French, every one of them talked about founding the colony to advance God's will, to fulfill God's purpose, and so on and so forth. Not Providence. It, in a draft, he had asked for God's blessing, but in the actual compact, he even removed the request for God's blessing. This is extraordinary for this devout Puritan minister. But Providence was to be strictly, the government was a civil government, totally divorced from religion. It would be a place, he began talking about soul liberty, probably the freest place in the world, uh, both even on women's rights. Uh, and in 1652, it outlawed slavery. Uh, now, how much influence did Williams have? that his views inform the Constitution. Williams is a very controversial figure among historians. Some, including, I think, our best colonial historian, Edmund Morgan, consider him a very large figure. Some consider him totally de minimis. Uh, one called him a magnificent failure because of the inability to shape the destiny of any of the other colonies. In fact, it did shape the destiny of other colonies. But that came because Massachusetts, thinking of Rhode Island as this pestilence on its border that might infect it, tried to crush it. And Williams returned to England several times, spent years there to gain the protection from the only thing in the world that Massachusetts was afraid of, Cromwell. He was a personal friend of Cromwell, an old friend. Uh, Milton and other leaders in revolutionary London. As I said, he spent years there, uh, and he had tremendous impact. He wrote new, you know, dozens of uh, pamphlets, uh, several books. These things were debated. There were literally hundreds and hundreds of books and pamphlets discussing his ideas. Many quoted him, complete with typographical errors, but without attribution. Now, this was not plagiarism. It's an indication that his ideas are so much in the middle of the debate that there's no need to actually cite the source. And what he said was, forced worship stinks in God's nostrils. He compared it to spiritual rape. He demanded that the most Jewish, paganish, Turkish, or anti-Christian consciences in all nations and countries be free to worship. He opposed toleration, which was a permission that could be withdrawn. He understood that only total separation of church and state could protect individual consciences. Anything less binds the church and state and corrupts the church and leads to coercion, however subtle that is. He made an analogy astounding in the 17th century especially for someone so devout, that, quote, the church or company of worshipers is like unto a company of merchants or any other company in London, which companies in matters concerning their own society may dissent, divide, 
break into schism and factions, yea, wholly dissolve and break into pieces, and yet the peace of the city be not in the least disturbed, because the essence of the city is distinct from these particular societies. But his most revolutionary statements actually came in politics. Virtually everyone believed the authority for government came from God. Parliament, in, at war with the crown, rejecting divine right of kings, still agreed that God gave the king the authority to govern. Nor did Parliament ever doubt the need for a state church or that the state should be, quote, nursing father, unquote, to the church. Williams rejected all these ideas. He said a Christian magistrate was no more and no better a magistrate than one of any other conscience or religion. Try saying that today and getting elected, uh, particularly in Alabama. Since the government was entirely secular and its power didn't come from God, he wrote, I infer that the sovereign original and foundation of civil power lies in the people. Government has no more power nor for a longer time than the people agreeing shall be trust them with. That was revolutionary. Two years after he returned to America, one of his leading opponents called his ideas, quote, the master of all our misorders, unquote. The levelers quoted him verbatim, but probably his most important impact came through Locke, who was certainly very familiar with Williams. You know, one academic who, familiar with both, wrote uh, that regarding religious toleration, Locke's ideas are simply restatements of the arguments developed by Williams in the middle of the century when Locke's opinions were being shaped. Another scholar said, it is impossible to discover a single significant difference between the arguments set forth by Williams and later advanced by Locke. They scarcely differ even in the details. For example, Locke borrowed the uh, analogy of a church being a company, uh, like a merchant. Uh, Use that analogy for Locke. Uh, W.K. Jordan, president of Radcliffe, wrote this classic study of the development of religious toleration in England concluded that not Locke, but Williams, quote, carefully reasoned argument for the complete dissociation of church and state was the most important contribution made during the century in this area of political thought. No figure could command such attention as this remarkable and accomplished leader. Lord Acton, in History of Liberty, wrote, the idea that religious liberty is the generating principle of civil liberty and that civil liberty is a necessary condition of religious was a discovery reserved for the 17th century. William's final impact came during the Restoration. Charles actually gave, Charles II gave Rhode Island a charter. In it, he did not establish the Church of England, and he allowed total uh, religious freedom. Uh, he called it an experiment. He then borrowed the identical language uh, Although he did establish the Church of England in Carolina and New Jersey, he borrowed the language about toleration and put it in those charters as well. You know, those ideas, direct or indirect, however filtered, clearly influenced the Constitution. The Constitution is an entirely secular document. It does use the word blessing, but it talks about the blessings of liberty as a writer 
Let me tell you, when you use a word like blessing, you understand what you are evoking. And when it's not followed by God, it's followed by another word that's significant. And eight years after the Constitution, the Senate unanimously passed a treaty which included the phrase, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. And uh, I'll close with a quote from Learned Hand. What then is the spirit of liberty? The spirit of liberty is that which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. The spirit of liberty is that which weighs their interests alongside its own without bias. The spirit of liberty, which is not too sure, it is right. And that is William's monstrous partiality. Uh, and I didn't get to any comments about today, but uh, perhaps I will in questions. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, our second speaker will be Robin Fretwell Wilson, who is the Roger and Stephanie Jocelyn Professor of Law at the College of Law at the University of Illinois. She, direct also, she also directs the College of Law's Family Law and Policy Program and the Epstein Health Law and Policy Program. She was here earlier at Cato, I, I learned today, with regard to healthcare policy. With generous support from the Templeton Religion Trust, Professor Wilson founded and directed the Fairness for All Initiative, which seeks to provide tangible support and advice to thought leaders, stakeholders, policymakers, and state and local legislatures who seek balanced approaches that both respect LGBT rights and religious freedom. Welcome back to Cato, Professor Wilson. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to pick up perhaps where Mr. Barry left off with some modern incantations of the tensions that he described. But those today would be uh, between LGBT rights and the demands of faith, or at least we think they are. And I first want to explore why constitutional guarantees like free exercise uh, will not resolve those collisions. Instead, people will have to arrive at agreements, in other words, write laws, that live with each other peacefully if that's the, the end they desire. So the crushing penalties that have been experienced by the bakers, the photographers, the candlestick makers, who ask simply to step aside from what they see as a religious sacrament, a marriage, are now being used to block sexual orientation and gender identity, or SOGI, SOGI non-discrimination laws. And in effect, I'll show you that a trope has developed, that if you protect the full LGBT community from discrimination, somehow that necessarily jeopardizes religious people and people's of faith's ability to live out that faith. I'm going to argue that that's wrong. But we need a new structure of public accommodation law that consciously shares the public square if we're going to break the tautology that for me to win, you have to lose. So I want to go back to Obergefell and do a little bit of stage setting for the wedding cake casers, cases and um, the other collisions that we are seeing. So Obergefell was a huge victory for lots of people who had been locked out of marriage. They were naturally elated to finally have the protections of marriage that many people take for granted. But that decision was seen and feared by many people as a, a threat to faith, not the least of which would be the four dissenting justices in Obergefell, including Chief Justice Robert, who read his dissent from the, from the bench 
for the first time in what had then been a decade on the Supreme Court. Roberts worried about what would happen to people of faith when their views became disfavored and out of step. What would happen to religious adoption agencies, he asked, or to religious colleges that have married student housing? Could they limit their married student housing to, to students in marriages that they recognized, i.e. traditional marriages? What's going to happen to the baker, the photographer, the candlestick maker? Now, these are all legitimate concerns, but not because of same-sex marriage itself or marriage qua marriage, but because of the structure of pre-existing non-discrimination laws passed long before marriage came on the scene and laws that I'll show you were written without marriage in mind, could not have been written with marriage in mind. Now, the majority decision written by Justice Kennedy, as you know, gives short shrift to these concerns. In fact, it cites First Amendment free exercise guarantees. People, he says, they can continue to teach and preach whatever they believe. But for people of faith, living out their faith means carrying it with them in the world. Not just the ability to worship in private or even to speak openly about their faith. It's the ability to act consistently with their faith and consistently, we hope, with the law. Now, legislators did not have a chance to address these kinds of questions uh, pre-Obergefell in much of the country because lower court decisions granting marriage equality, uh, in fact, the, the states that are red did not have marriage equality, but the lower court decisions before Obergefell essentially swept the nation and um, even before Obergefell resolved the question dispositively. So the country went overnight in a space of months from being red, meaning no same-sex marriage in most of the country, to being blue, meaning same-sex marriage everywhere. Now, courts grapple with the questions directly in front of them. The question in Obergefell was whether the state could preclude same-sex couples from marrying. Answer, no. But courts cannot do the hard work of balancing plural interests. That's the province of legislators and statesmen who are charged with balancing the interests of everybody in society, not just the litigants in front of the court. Now, it's worth revisiting for just a moment exactly why free exercise guarantees under the First Amendment did not protect people of faith as they navigate the world and many of its laws. I don't know, do we have any law students in the audience? Because you'll recognize uh, the reason for that is the Smith decision, which you might remember as the peyote decision, right? That's how many people think of it. So in that case, there's a set of American Indians who ingested peyote. That was a crime in the state, and they were fired from their jobs. They argued that the First Amendment meant that the laws could not burden their religion without good reason, and that those laws should be subjected to heightened scrutiny. In other words, the government would have to have exceedingly good reasons for burdening them, i.e. a compelling interest and no less restrictive method. And in a decision authored by the late Justice Scalia, 5-4, very narrowly, the court said no. A heightened scrutiny, he says, would make every professed religion a law unto themselves. But Scalia was careful to include this. He said, if religious people are worried about that outcome, then they can seek special protection on the law, just like we give special protection to First Amendment speech right, both in statute and in the Constitution. They can seek specific exemptions for their religious beliefs from legislators. Now, I know that Mr. Olson is going to talk at the end about RIFRA, but it's worth uh, noting that that's precisely what gave us the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which became later so controversial in Hobby Lobby. Um, it also gave us the, tw the 22 state lookalike statutes or mini-RIFRAs in the states. 
Now, I should pause and say that I think RIFRAs do good work. I'm not necessarily against RIFRAs. They've got caught up in this debate in a way that's unfortunate. But when Kentucky, for example, tossed 10 Amish men in jail for running their buggies at night without orange safety triangles, they were happy to have a gray triangle. They were happy to have a lantern for safety. But they could not use an orange triangle because that's flashy in their faith tradition and not allowed by their faith. Kentucky tossed these men in jail. Now, many people think RIFRA's ideal for testing exactly that kind of burden, for being sure that the government does not unnecessarily crush religious belief and practice. But RIFRA is not going to get the wedding vendors out of their bind, or for that matter, religious adoption agencies or religious colleges with married student housing. Because once a state passes a non-discrimination law uh, preventing sexual orientation and gender identity uh, discrimination. And in that law, it makes no special allowance for these specific religious practices, like Title IX does, for example, for religious colleges. Absent that specific protection, the government almost surely needs the compelling interest prong under RIFRA, and there is no less obviously restrictive method than saying, we are not making this distinction here. So, with a single exception, in the 24 years since Congress has enacted RIFRA, and that exception's now on appeal, we have never seen a RIFRA successfully asserted against a non-discrimination statute in America. And it's for that reason. Quite the contrary, what we have seen are these crushing fines being leveled against wedding vendors or cease and desist orders in Jack Phillips's case, which is now before the Supreme Court under state non-discrimination laws, even when those states had state RIFRAs, like New Mexico, where Cato, I believe, filed uh, briefs on behalf of the small business wedding owners. Now, Jax Phillips' case before the Supreme Court is both a free exercise case, query just from the brief recitation of Smith how well that's going to go, unless one sees the non-discrimination law as targeting people of faith specifically. And then, uh, Professor Reddish earlier suggested that as a freedom of expression case, it may be a really tough call too. I think it's anybody's guess. I think, though, that these refusals, I want to be clear, are humiliating to gay couples. I am not arguing that a person's religious rights or interests mean that they should be able to say no to everybody at all costs. Instead, I believe we have to find peaceful ways to coexist that respect the dignity and the interest of all of us in this community. And in fact, that's what we saw in the voluntary same-sex marriage states. In other words, the states that proactively recognize same-sex marriage by legislation um, or by initiative as Maine did. And as you can see in all the states on this map in blue, they included specific protections against foreseeable collisions like those raised by Chief Justice Roberts. Church and church-affiliated groups, for example, would not have to host in New York, Rhode Island, and Maryland um, marriages on their grounds. Nobody's going to make them marry people in their sanctuary. That clearly would be a First Amendment violation. See Hosanna Tabor. But query whether they have a First Amendment right to their tax exemption if they say no to folks outside of the sanctuary. And these states said, let's just put that issue to rest and dispositively set it to the side. 
And in particular, say it would not violate the pre-existing non-discrimination law in every single one of those blue states. These states went on to say, and by the way, you can't be sued for that denial in that particular case or refusal. You can't be pen penalized by the government. Some of them made sort of one-off provisions for religious counseling and said you can be specifically assured of being able to have a Baptist marriage retreat that has folks only in marriages that Baptists would recognize, for example, without penalty under the law. Others said that you could have marriage suited housing. If you had it before, you can have it after. Let's not make this the fight that stops marriage equality. And so did some with religious adoption social services agencies, something that's become significantly more controversial just in the last few months. Now, many people naturally assume that the moment for addressing these collisions has passed. In other words, we can't give folks access to marriage in order to ask for step-offs from marriage, which is what the blue states were doing legislatively. Now, I think the way forward, though, is to give people things that they need. And after Obergefell, the deep irony is that same-sex couples can marry everywhere in the United States, but they can't be assured of having their wedding reception at their favorite restaurant in any place on this map that is white. Now, that should be offensive to us. There's no need for that, I believe. So, um, lost track of myself. Oh, and I should say also that there is no federal litigation strategy, by the way, for like we've seen with Title VII in employment or we've seen in Title IX uh, with um, colleges for resolving this in federal law because our federal non-discrimination statute, Title II, does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex. So you can't make the move that sex is the same as sexual orientation, the same as gender identity, and turn this whole map blue. It's going to have to happen by sitting down at a table and talking through what's at stake and how people live together. Now to the blue parts of the map for a second. In these blue parts, places like Colorado, Oregon, and New Mexico, where Cato has been filing briefs, and Washington State for that matter, and Baronel Stutzman's case, the states do protect the full LGBT community from discrimination, but they do so with laws written without marriage in mind. I'll show you that in a second. So the fact that the United States is a classic checkerboard is now being used by both sides on the far extremes to lock this map in place and make it static. This is part of the reason that we've seen no new uh, progress. Um, so for example, this is a letter from December that was signed by 75 religious leaders, many of whom you will recognize by name. And one part of the letter says that any soji, however nuanced, will necessarily inherently hurt religion, however nuanced. And that letter, in all fairness, was responding to an equally extreme claim on the other side um, from the US Civil Rights Commission, but perhaps more damaging was what Chairman Castro said when that report was released, which was essentially any claim for discrimination is a claim to be a bigot. Now, we can see this as a fight, an all-or-nothing fight over the public square. Right now, you can think of the public square in most of the United States, the white parts of that map, is occupied by religious stakeholders. And in those parts of the map, LGBT people, they just lose. They can get out, or, or more accurately, not be allowed into a store. 
And in the blue parts of the state, with these older non-discrimination laws that predated marriage equality, the LGBT community occupies the public square and religious people can get out or get with the program or close. Now that all or nothing character explains this which is that we have had no new sexual orientation, gender identity, non-discrimination law in America for the full LGBT community since 2008. Now the states have protected, as you see on the bottom, trans folks. Like they'll bring protections in for the T if they had already protected the LGBT, LGB part of the community. But we've had no full on uh, protection since then. And I believe that's not only a problem of the bakers, it's a problem of the bathroom. And I'll, I want to talk for just a second about the bathroom narrative, because it has become an incredibly powerful bar to new laws in the states. So we all remember North Carolina. Um, I actually went to look at bathroom laws, bathroom bills, through the course of history all the way back to 2008, as it turns out. I th you can see a clear spike with the Houston hero, which happens here. But it actually goes all the way back to the last SOGI law passed in America in Colorado. And immediately after that, a, an opponent of SOGI laws, a signatory to the Colson Center letter that I showed you earlier, started this narrative. They showed an ad with a little girl coming out of a bathroom stall and a pair of men's boots. And it was clear that the idea was that this law would then allow folks to be uh, preyed upon. And then, of course, North Carolina suffered, suffered punishing um, punishing uh, economic repercussions for that before partially repealing it. But that did not do anything to prevent a slew of bathroom bills all across the country this year, although none of them have succeeded. Now, why you would sign up for that kind of punishment, I have no idea. Now, I want to spend a second on the... Um, the idea of the safety claim, because it is incredibly powerful. It's now being used not to stop just a public accommodation, non-discrimination law. It's being used to stop housing protections and hiring protections where there is obviously no public safety rationale at the base of it. And I took all the affidavits filed on behalf of North Carolina by the FBI agent and the longtime serving sheriffs, and they're like hundreds of paragraphs, and I deconstructed them, mapped them out. And they basically, the claim is a house of cards and it runs like this. If they, both experts, by the way, agreed that there had never been a reported instance at that time of any trans person victimizing a child, never. Instead, this is a classic problem of sexual predators, read men, victimizing children in bathrooms. They can do that now by cross-dressing. You know that already. You've seen that in the debate. This basically claims that if we pass a SOGI non-discrimination law, what will happen is people will not know they're victimized, and if they find out that they're, if they really understand they're victimized, they won't actually um, disclose that to authorities because they'll fear being labeled a bigot. I forgot my phone, so I'm going to borrow your phone just to make this point. Uh, so we saw immediately after this a case that tests that whole narrative. And it's this case of a trans woman, you'll remember, who uh, entered the target fitting room and reaches over the fitting room wall and photographs the young lady in the next fitting room. It's kind of creepy, isn't it? And guess what? She understood 
She understood, her mother too, understood that that was a felony in Idaho. They reported it. It's the reason that we have the mugshot of the trans woman in this picture, right? So the whole sort of cascading set of assumptions, people won't know they're victimized and they will be afraid to report, just falls apart when you think about cases like this. Now that said, there are safety issues. And I'll just spend a second on um, a young man that I spent a lot of time with in Alaska who is genderqueer, and his name is Bree. And when I was talking to him, he had a half-out beard and a biker jacket, really buff-looking guy, and he shows me his phone, where on the weekends he uh, dresses as a woman and presents as a woman and goes out to bars as a woman. Now, he believes under the law of that state that he actually has to use the bathroom of his birth, right? So he goes into the men's bathroom. And I said, how does that work for you? And he's like, well, a lot of times people are like, what the hell are you doing in here? And that's when they talk about going out back to fight. There are safety issues, but it's not to the rest of the community by forcing people into one place or another. So that issue is dispensable if you're willing to tackle it on the facts directly, I think. Much harder is the question about the bakers. Because what we've seen is these crushing fines and cease and desist orders applied to people like Jack Phillips. And that's because old style, non-discrimination laws that were defined to cover a few businesses originally, gas stations, restaurants, common character, carriers, they contained no exception once you were defined into this narrow circle. In effect, these laws were passed with burgers and taxis and apartment buildings in mind, but they have been applied to religiously infused services the same way as this fellow who in Tennessee, after the Obergefell decision, put up a sign saying no gays allowed, as if those two things were exactly the same. Now, some would say, that telling people to get the hell out of your store or don't come in and saying I can't do the slice, the, the wedding cake for you are morally equivalent and that both should be illegal. I believe they're not morally the same. When the Tennessee store owner says get the hell out of my store, that refusal by its very nature is about the people in front of him. It cannot be parsed from claims about them. But when Baronel Stutzman the Washington florist who served her client Rob Ingersoll for nearly a decade. She's patently not anti-gay. When she says no, she is trying to honor her relationship to God and his understanding of marriage. And that is separable from the people in front of her. In fact, the refusal is less about Rob and Kurt than it is about God and Baronel's relationship to God. Now, the, California, the Colorado court in Masterpiece found otherwise. Specifically, it found that because only gays could have same-sex marriages, then saying no to a same-sex marriage by its very nature was sexual orientation discrimination. But the court was forced to that conclusion because the law under which Phillips was penalized was written before marriage was on the scene. It was not written with marriage in mind. It could not have been written with marriage in mind in some places like in the New Mexico photography case. So let me go back and remind everybody where we are. This is the map. And in all the white parts of this map, LGBT persons can be kicked out of businesses for good reason, no reason, all kinds of reasons. It's worth remembering that if we are going to enact uh, protections, we are talking about the rest of the country 
which is Red America. These are legislatures controlled by Republicans. They are led by Republican governors, I think with a single exception, Louisiana, where Mr. Berry is, and they are deeply religious. I think that these legislatures have an opportunity to find a new structure for non-discrimination law. I'm happy to see Jonathan Rausch here from Brookings. He's talked about this in the past, that your non-discrimination protection in Texas doesn't necessarily have to look like the one in Massachusetts. That's the way forward. What would that look like if you wrote a law like that? I think it has to look like no one is excluded from any business on Main Street, but that when we pass these laws, we regulate the business and not each and every single person inside it, i.e. Jack Phillips himself directly. In other words, we need to find a way forward where Jack Phillips can be faithful to his convictions, but no one is ever turned aside. And I think that's possible. And I'll just end here with the fork in the road. We can do nothing, and in parts of the country, religious people will be crushed under laws that were written without marriage in mind. And in other parts, LGBT persons will continue to be discriminated against and kicked out of hardware stores in Tennessee. Or we can find a new approach so that everyone can peacefully coexist and that that will maximize the freedom for all of us. Thank you. Moving along to our final speaker, Walter Olson is senior fellow at Cato Institute's Center for Constitutional Studies and is known for his writing on the American legal system. His books include The Rule of Lawyers on Mass Litigation, The Excuse Factory on Lawsuits in the Workplace, and most recently, Schools for Misrule on the State of the Law Schools. His first book, The Litigation Explosion, was one of the most widely discussed general audience books uh, of its time. He is known as the founder and principal writer of what is generally considered the oldest blog on law as well as, as one of the most uh, popular. That would be overlawyer.com. He has advised many public officials and in 2015 was named by Governor Larry Hogan to be co-chair of the Maryland Redistricting Reform Commission, which issued its report uh, recommendations later that year to a claim across the, street, uh, across the state. Uh, Wally? Well, thank you, John. On the topic of religious exemptions, uh, we libertarians have a first line of defense that we love to use, which is that if the law is bearing down too, so hard on someone uh, that it affects their conscience and it's possible to let them out of it, uh, maybe it's best to get rid of that law in the first place. And for a lot of issues, that works for me. Uh, if a small group of American Indians uh, is religiously oppressed because they can't use peyote, we know the libertarian answer. We should all be able to use peyote. Um, if a zoning law is making it unreasonably hard for a church to operate, libertarian answer, uh, the church should not have to follow those zoning laws, and neither should anyone else. <clears throat> if a public accommodations law is bearing down on photographers and florists, threatening them with huge fines uh, for choosing their clientele, uh, the libertarian answer, I think, is that photographers and florists and many others should not be public accommodations uh, in the first place. They should be private enterprises of choice. 
does I could go on with this. Does do the owners of Hobby Lobby object to taking part in some aspects of Obamacare? I mean, you can complete you can complete my sentence, can't you? No business should be compelled to take part in Obamacare. Well, I like these arguments too, and I use them a lot. They point in the direction of freedom, of greater freedom for everyone, as my colleague and boss, Roger Pilan, put it uh, in his presentation in the newly issued Cato volume, which I recommend, Deep Commitments About Religious Liberty. Uh, he said that uh, before and beyond a Religious Freedom Restoration Act, America could really use a Freedom Restoration Act, an FRA, uh, and we could start by enforcing the individual liberties provided in the Constitution. Much as I love these arguments, though, they only get us part of the distance, and then they run out of gas. Uh, the fact is that not all of the things that our fellow uh, citizens are debating uh, can be resolved very easily by that first-line libertarian argument. Sometimes libertarians have lost the underlying public debate. Uh, let's say in a war there is going to be conscription. Uh, libertarians got outvoted on that, and the question is whether members of peace churches uh, must serve in combat. Suppose that there is going to be zoning. Libertarians are probably in a minority on that in a lot of places. So there will be the many, many debates in which we won't really have a chance to persuade the public to repeal the underlying law. And yet, if we wish to take part in public debate, we need to think about whether we favor the exemptions or not. Uh, there will also be, even if libertarians win all the debates, uh, there will probably be some cases left. Even a night watchman state is going to have to decide uh, when the night watchman asks for his Sabbath off, uh, whether or not there's a conflict with the other night watchman. So we can't really get out of having to face issues of religious accommodations. And libertarians, like I would say almost every other group that we talk with, are torn uh, or ought to be torn because of the legitimate uh, factors that pull in each direction. On the one hand, as we've heard, government should not oppress people. Uh, when you are required to violate your conscience, when you are taken away uh, on a weekend, although you feel you have a church obligation, when you are forced to eat a foodstuff that you believe uh, uh, you are not meant to eat, uh, this strikes you as oppression. Government ought not to oppress people, especially if it can easily rearrange its activities so as not to do so. And yet, there is the other side. Uh, <clears throat> most libertarians are deeply committed to the rule of law. The rule of law means evenness, it means uniformity, it means that the law should not play favorites. It should not place some people in a better position than other people because of their religious belief. And that's why when I tried to figure out what is the libertarian view on religious exemptions, I uh, realized that I had a tall order in front of me because uh, every time I talked to a libertarian, they had a different position from the last libertarian about religious exemptions. The Constitution requires them, of course. Uh, <clears throat> that's free exercise. Or the Constitution forbids religious exemptions. Of course, that would be establishment. Uh, what about RIFRAs? The, uh, I've heard the entire range on RIFRAs from, uh, well, they're good, but they should be superfluous because the Constitution should be read to do that already. All the way through, uh, no, RIFRAs are unconstitutional because they give that extra legal advantage to religious people and every possible intermediate position. So when I searched the Cato website on this, uh, the first big discussion I saw was by Nadine Strawson, 
who gave the lecture in the 2005 Cato Supreme Court Review, um, she said that the Supreme Court had taken the right path in the old cases, like Sherbert versus Werner uh, and uh, Yoder, when it accorded free exercise the same kind of gold standard treatment that it gave free speech. Uh, it would take an exacting look, even if the law were not meant to burden it, but had accidentally burdened it, uh, it would uh, apply a very, very tough scrutiny. And she deplored the court's later retreat, uh, which Robin mentioned uh, in the Smith decision, retreat from that exacting scrutiny. Uh, and she expressed pride, this was in 2005, that her own ACLU had taken a maximalist position on religious liberty. Uh, boy, those were the days. Um, <clears throat> so that's one view that I know is shared by some of my most respected colleagues at Cato. At the same time, um, ask Professor Sasha Volok, this is not our luncheon speaker, Eugene Volok, but the other libertarian law professor, Sasha Volok, who has written that, uh, quote, he is not wild about religious exemptions as a first principles matter, um, and that Justice Stevens may have been right in his concurrence in City of Bourne, in which he said, uh, if a church gets a right against, zone, uh, his, against historic preservation laws, that a secular building, equally historic, equally attractive, does not get, that church has been placed uh, in a higher position uh, that implicates the Establishment Clause. So that's Sasha Volok. Eugene Volok, who you'll be hearing from at lunch, wrote a wonderful article in 1999 basically defending the middle ground, defending what we have now where it's not constitutionalized, but you have RIFRA. So <clears throat> I rest my case. You can't even get agreement necessarily between two libertarian brothers, uh, let alone between all of us who call ourselves that. We, too, struggle with what the Establishment Clause means, uh, what the Free Exercise Clause means, how they interact, and how originalist we dare to be about all of it. So I will speak from here on just as myself. <clears throat> I don't apologize for libertarians being all over the map because, let's face it, a lot of our friends in other parts of the political spectrum are also all over the map. Sequentially, the ACLU, for example, started out in one place and wound up in a very different. It took 25 years for them to pull back from their maximalist view officially, but they have been pulling back for a long time. And I'd like to quote from my summary of an ACLU document that explains some of the cases that came up that caused them to rethink their maximalist position on uh, uh, religious liberty. And they're all workplace cases, and some are public and some are private. But let's assume for argumentation that they're all public employees. Uh, <clears throat> police officers who asked to be excused from protecting abortion clinics, two truck drivers and an emergency worker who asked to avoid overnight shifts spent in the company of women, employees who wished to proselytize co-workers or agency clients about lifestyles that they saw as sinful, proselytize mental patients or prison inmates at their workplace, uh, <clears throat> employees seeking to display symbols that they held to be of religious significance, but which co-workers found upsetting, uh, counselors who were assigned clients uh, and believed that it was wrong to counsel them uh, on their relationships. And, if you find all of these cases easy to resolve the same way, then you are probably at one of the two extremes uh, in our current debate. I don't find them all easy. I would rather look at facts and circumstances. Sometimes I sympathize with one side, sometimes with the other. Nearly always I would say that there can't be a hard and fast rule. You need to listen to what happened in many of those cases. And yet, 
we now find ourselves in a position where the debate, as Robin has mentioned, is so polarized that most of the people who comment regularly in the media have already pre-committed. The ACLU and its many, many uh, companion organizations have basically committed to a view that religious liberty should never win one of these debates if uh, anti-discrimination norms or related issues of reproductive freedom are on the other side. Never. They should never win on that side. Um, you also have their mere images who believe that religious liberty should always win. And that has helped make so terribly unproductive some of the debates over, for example, state rifers. Uh, in our Cato conference, uh, Doug Laycock of the University of Virginia pointed out something that uh, I think ties in with what Robin was saying and what I certainly have noticed myself, which is when one of these uh, pop outrages uh, you know, pops up and everyone then uh, can discuss nothing else for a while. Maybe it's a state rifer or maybe it's a uh, court case. Uh, the public reaction is almost exactly the same if it's an extreme and unreasonable uh, assertion or, or lawsuit as if it's one that's really quite close to the middle and, and hardly differs at all from what has already been allowed. Uh, the reaction to those state religious liberty laws that genuinely were really extreme and that I thought would do terrible things was basically exactly the same and the most of the defenses were the same so far as you could tell on uh, talk shows uh, from the ones that were extremely modest and would hardly move the needle at all. So people have committed to these extreme positions and that's why although we will disagree on a number of other things, I'm very much with Professor Wilson on her efforts to find some sort of common ground. The, what we found with the Indiana River, what we have found with uh, the North Carolina bathroom bill, and many, many other things, is that people will beat each other up to the point of declaring boycotts of states over issues that are of virtually no relevance to anyone's in, uh, direct, direct life. Pure symbolism. And uh, I know that never happens, right? I mean, Americans beating each other up politically over purely symbolic issues that have no impact on our lives. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, um, it happens, obviously, elsewhere now all the time, but it happens especially here. So. The, let me skip here. Let me talk a little about where the left has come out on what to do about RIFRA, because they admit that they still like uh, a lot of it. They like the uh, schedules and grooming type issues for employees. They like the idea that someone can assert their right to um, get their work rescheduled for a Sabbath, that they can assert the right to wear a beard or a turban or a hijab. And, so they don't want to throw out all of that. Uh, but the formulation that they use, and again, I'm going to quote from uh, the Cato volume, which you should all buy. I believe it's for sale out there, uh, which brought together a lot of eloquent voices on this. Louise Melling from the ACLU uh, <clears throat> put it as follows. She said, we are guided by the core principle that religious liberty gives us a right to hold and live according to our beliefs, but not to harm others. Yet exemptions from laws barring discrimination in places of public accommodation do just that. They engender harm, unquote. Now, keep that word in mind, harm, because there is a consistent kind of messaging going on here. The bill to amend RIFRA to strip out any interaction with uh, public accommodations and, and discrimination law is couched as the Do No Harm Act. Uh, and it is explained on its sponsor's website that it clarifies that RIFRA is intended to protect religious freedom without allowing the infliction of harm on other people, unquote. Now, 
I think there are several problems with this argument. First is obviously that the other side of the uh, coin, the workings of discrimination law, do harm targets. It harms the people who are ordered to pay $200,000 in damages. It takes away their freedom. It sets them up for litigation even if, they, even if the damage award is not large. So at a minimum, as Roger Pilon points out, you would be setting up some sort of weighing process or competing process between harms on the one side and harms on the other side, except that as we know from their desire for a blanket uniform 100% rule, they don't want a balancing. They believe that the one type of harm should always trump the other type of harm. The second point is that in so many of these cases, especially the wedding services one, the predominant variety of harm is not a financial loss. Uh, it is the insult. It is having to drive six whole blocks over to a different florist. Um, and Louise Melling acknowledged very honestly that uh, in many of these cases, uh, the mo monetary damages are non existent or trivial. Uh, but she said what the law needs to step in for is the idea of, I don't approve of you, the dignitary harm, the insult. But of course, that messaging also works in both directions. The whole point of organizing litigation against these bakers is to express societal disapproval. And as soon as the case is off and running, social media uh, <coughs> drags the people through an enormous uh, amount of negative discussion. Uh, that's a euphemism. Terrible, terrible things are said about uh, both sides. Uh, so the whole point of having litigation is to stigmatize as socially disapproved. There will be dignitary harms on both sides of this weighing process that we're not supposed to be allowed to do. And, but my wider point is one that I have not seen others make about harm. And that is, so far as I can tell, <laughs> Most of the most glorious religious accommodations that have been made in the past were in instances where people sure did think there was harm. Uh, for example, uh, the religious accommodation that I always think of as uh, showing the um, generous soul of many of our ancestors is that even when the country's existence was in danger in combat, the peace churches were still allowed to not have their children fight. Now, there's an implication when your neighbor is allowed not to send their son to the war, which is your son might be there uh, being shot at instead. Uh, sometimes they were required to pay fines. Sometimes they were required to find other people to serve. Nonetheless, you can't get much more direct as a potential harm than uh, you're going to make me fight a war uh, because your religion tells you not to. And on down the line for so many of the others, if you are in litigation against someone and you believe that the oath uh, is, as people have historically believed, uh, is a crucial component in getting them to be truthful, then if someone shows up and they are a Quaker and they says, change the rules for me, uh, I, I won't participate in this system otherwise, and they do change them, and that one, one person just gives up their beliefs, um, is suddenly in a different posture with, uh, in their litigation with respect to you, you might worry that you had been harmed up and down the line. Sometimes, as with peyote, libertarians would deny that there is harm to neighbors. But nearly always, when religious accommodation has been granted, in all these other cases, uh, it is because the public believed it would be harmed, and it valued religion so much that it embraced the accommodation, even knowing that it, it might be harmed itself. For that matter, if you are asking to change all of your coworkers' schedules to cover for you on your Sabbath, they might see that as harm. But the ACLU sees it as fine. So I want to get back to 
the question of what kind of compromise can be made. Cato has filed in case after case, uh, often not very successfully, because the courts have not been very interested in recognizing um, a freedom of expression defense to these things. Now, whether you believe that writing something in frosting is different from writing it in pen and ink, um, you know, to, to me, I can see Cato's analogy, and yet uh, they would rather draw the line in a different place. The one case that is won is the Kentucky case in which the printer was told that it did not have to print uh, gay pride t-shirts uh, because printing a t-shirt is a little more obviously close to writing an expression uh, than showing up at a wedding and uh, doing the photography. So most of those freedom of expression cases have been lost so far. Whether or not Masterpiece Cake Shop will also be lost, uh, I don't know, and I hope not, of course, because Cato has filed an amicus brief. The other argument that is being offered that I think has the best chance in the Masterpiece Cake Shop one, and I, which I think has a lot of logic to it is that the law should recognize a line between participation in ceremony and participation in ordinary life, that it, uh, compelling people with that additional step to participate in something that they believe has the heightened significance of ceremony um, is, uh, it is a secular idea. Uh, we secular people believe in ceremony too. Um, it is something that is not particularly going to discriminate among religions and possibly the court will be willing to draw the line there. But we need to do that wider thinking that Robin mentioned. Uh, I think we should start with rethinking the scope of public accommodation law. Uh, my colleague Roger Pilon, as well as uh, Richard Epstein, uh, the great libertarian law professor, have said that if you go back to the history of public accommodations, um, very often the things that the king required to be common carriers or public accommodations were a narrow set of things. Um, travelers might die if a stagecoach would not pick them up at the side of the road or if an inn would not take them up on a cold winter's night. You will not die if a florist refuses you her services. Somewhere in between, uh, we might want to get back to the idea that certain services um, are granted perhaps monopoly positions or special government favors on the assumption that they will serve everyone while others are private. <clears throat> on the broader question of religious liberty, of course, libertarians, I believe, are not confused and are not at sea. Uh, we draw at a, on a broad classical liberal tradition in which religious liberty uh, both uh, in America and on the other side of the Atlantic is an absolutely central theme. Uh, most of us here in this building uh, look to, in particular to the American founding, which owes so much, as we know um, uh, from uh, uh, John's uh, comments, owes so much to America's role as a haven from religious persecution and to the ferment of classical liberal ideas about freedom of religion. We also realized that in supporting liberty in general and the constitutional matrix of liberty, libertarians are providing an underpinning for religious liberty that goes beyond the relevant clauses of the First Amendment. Uh, West Virginia versus Barnett, the flag salute case, officially it was a free speech case, and yet looking back, it's clear that it was one of the liberties, or the, one of the milestones in religious liberty as well. Freedom of association, property rights cherished by libertarians are important to everyone, but they specifically help undergird the idea that we have a right to associate for purposes of religion and to create dedicated spaces for religion more public and more permanent than if we just had to rotate our meeting among members' apartments as if we were in some socialist uh, <coughs> uh, Soviet bloc uh, era. 
Freedom of contract, the chance to form legal corporations are important to economic liberty and they are important to religious liberty. So the, simple, the system of simple liberty that libertarians favor benefits all who prize independence. And among those who prize independence are churches who have something to teach that the world may not want to hear. So thank you. Okay, let's go on. We're, uh, we have till 12.15 at least to uh, have a question and answer. Remember, raise your hand and make sure it's in the form of a question. And if you want to direct it to a particular person, please also indicate that, although we'll sort of reserve the right for everyone to comment. Um, who would like to pose the first question? The woman on the, against the walls. Hi, I'm Stephanie Slade from Reason Magazine, and I had a question for you, Robin. Um, I felt like you walked us right up to the solution and then didn't give it. So you, you said you think there's a way to sort of have a balance, a balanced alternative that would both ensure that nobody is turned away from stores, but also protect the individual, you know, proprietor of the store. So could, could you explain what you mean by that solution? Yeah, thank you. It's a great question. It's nice to see you again. Um, Basically, it would be this. We know that if Baronel Stutzman can't make this cake, okay, and if Washington, the problem, I'm, I'm in broad agreement with, the, with, with Walter's comments, but the problem is that the law took a black and white approach because it was working off of a racial non-discrimination model. That's what was in their head when they wrote it. They didn't think about this religiously infused service. So... We know that if you put this duty on Baronelle Stutzman, she could hire an employee to fulfill it, okay? But for the small wedding vendors, well, maybe. Let me come back to that. I'll bracket that in a second. But for the smallest wedding vendors, that's like an existential crisis for them. That's the same as saying close and get out, right? Um, also, by the way, the other solutions that people like to say are there for them, like quit doing wedding cakes, you're not going to make it as a bakery if, if you don't make certain kinds of case. So that's just sort of not an answer. So the question is, what if she can't afford a full employee? And I think we have to find a way for people who walk into the, to Arlene's Flowers, right, to be served, but give Baronel more options in the toolkit to get that service done. Okay, what would that be? She can hire a new employee. If she can't, the background law of contract generally allows people to delegate a duty. They remain liable for it, right? So that would mean that she could pre proactively arrange for someone to help her in these instances, fulfill the duty of the business, but not herself individually performing it, okay? Um, the wrinkle is that in the background law of contract, uh, if you are Shakespeare writing a play and um, Mr. Samples says to Shakespeare, I want you to do this play, and Shakespeare says, pack off. That's not interesting to me. I don't want to do it. He could always do that. He could do that. But once he signed a contract with Samples to do that, he couldn't delegate it because Samples had hired Shakespeare for the package of things that made him Shakespeare. But in that instance, to go to something that Mr. Olson said, 
Shakespeare would never have been defined a public accommodation. His primary defense to having to use his artistic creative value to an end that he didn't believe or he just thought was stupid uh, was to say no and not get involved. What's happened with public accommodations law between the early Title II and what's happened at the states is Title II was very narrow. Mr. Olson described how narrow it was. And then when it gets moved into the states, it gets pulled to almost everything. Think of California Unruh Civil Rights Act. Covers everything. Even you in your own private home, I believe, working out of it. Now, the unintended effect of that is people who don't have much talent baking, think me, I could delegate all day long because nobody's hiring me because I'm like Shakespeare. But for the Jack Phillips of the world, or the cake bosses, or Baronel Stutzman who are really talented, they get pulled into privity of contract with someone through anti-discrimination law because they're on Main Street but they're told they can't use anybody else to help them fulfill that duty, potentially. Now, they could be smart and structure the relationship between the business uh, and, as opposed to themselves and the public, but I think under laws that are written without marriage, being thought of as a sacrament, nobody's gonna buy that. Colorado did not. So the answer is not a RIFRA solution in a case like this, although I don't disagree with RIFRAs. It's just to write better laws. But what we should not do is say, because there are bakers who have gone down and been treated harshly under laws that were badly written, we can't protect LGBT people. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Um, I I would just add that uh, in a number of the recent controversies, the uh, regulated parties have, in fact, um, had referral systems in which they would refer to a non-religious agency, for example, uh, which seemed to uh, work very efficiently and yet were not considered enough because somehow or other the principle of the thing requires everyone to directly comply rather than just uh, move the compliance along. Now, that's definitely an instance where I find the uh, you know, advocates of discrimination law ought to rethink because they're not being very reasonable. Can I make a friendly amendment to that? I'm not suggesting that when people walk up to Arlene Flowers that they're ever told go down the street. I actually ascribe to the view, and I, I'm sorry that Louise Melling is not here because she is such a powerful advocate for this view, but that's humiliating. Being asked to go down the street is humiliating. We need Baronel, her business, to be regulated, not her personally. And then the business on Main Street accepts every person who walks in just on the same basis as they would accept everybody else. And we give her more tools and the toolkit to get that business duty done. That's different. That's a, a, a fine point, but that's not the same thing as refuse and refer. Can I say, uh, I, obviously what I was talking about is much more general than many of these specific cases. Um, but I actually did think of how it might apply to post-Obama era. Uh, I think there are two sort of Occam's razors you can look at or, 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 or use when you look at any case. One is pretty obvious we'd all agree on, I think, is the state neutral? And the second gets a little more complicated, uh, and it goes back to how I defined freedom as you know, those who are in power limiting their control over those who are weak. And I think if you look at it from that 
uh, perspective uh, that the whole system uh, is set up, I think, to try to protect the weak. Uh, that may help, that prism may help you think through some of these things. Gentleman on the aisle on the right side was first. Uh, Jim Young, National Right to Work Foundation. Um, two observations. Isn't the root cause of this entire problem the whole dignity analysis of Justice Kennedy, which was so thoroughly discredited by Justice Scalia's dissent in Obergefell? And second, uh, Professor Wilson on the end there, you're talking about forced compliance. There's, there seems to be no middle ground. You know, you will be made to care, as one author has appropriately put it. You can respond. Okay, well, there were two pieces of it, the dignity analysis. Um, I, I mean, I'm with Walter on this. I think there are dignity interests in both directions. But look, look at those fellows that Kim Davis said, you know, had sitting outside of her office refusing to do the paperwork to marry. I want to give a, a, a possible solution to that even in a second. But if you don't think that's humiliating, I, I think we're not talking honestly at that point. Now, I also believe that when somebody is struggling with their faith, and they have a commitment to God. And it's not my faith conviction is that you as a homosexual are, are beneath me. It is, in fact, about a separable thing, the marriage. That those folks are also being treated awfully in our society right now. And somehow we have to find a way to, to, uh, to recognize the dignity interests of both of them. And it's not going to come from all or nothing, I believe. I think it's going to come from trying to find a way forward. You said they are made to do, to, to care. We have never written a public accommodations law in America once somebody was defined into the group that said, you do not serve all people who present. That does not mean that every single business owner performs every single service. Does it mean they take people's money? Yes. Does it mean that folks walk in the front door? Yes. And the primary dignitary harm here is the fact that you're being turned away from a business that other folks get to enjoy. That's the way forward. Well, uh, <clears throat> I would add, uh, with respect to Justice Kennedy's opinion, that I think it's... Uh, a good aspiration for the law itself not to inflict humiliation uh, when it uh, need not do that. Uh, but at the same time, the law cannot aspire and has never aspired in any sane times to remedying all private humiliation. Uh, the fact is that it would have to intensively regulate conversation. Maybe we are headed in that direction. Uh, but the law in general does not take notice of um, insult and humiliation unless there is some other circumstance, perhaps a contractual relationship between the party in which they understood that there would not be that, uh, perhaps the prelude to a fight. Um, the, the law does not make it a general rule that 
that there is any remedy for someone speaking slightingly of you. And um, I uh, recognize that there is much to question, and many of my Cato colleagues have, have questioned it, about the means by which Justice Kennedy uh, reached his conclusion. Uh, that is a fair game for debate. Uh, at the same time, you know, let's not overstate, uh, we are not yet living in a world in which uh, people can call in the government every single time they feel they've been humiliated. And I hope we never get there. Gentleman right down here, that is a hand up earlier. As we go nearer to the end of the session, please remember you can ask questions afterwards and speak with the speakers if you want. Uh, yeah, my name's Jim McDonald, American Engineering Association, but uh, I have, uh, this has to do with the, the business of being required to participate in a ceremony. And uh, last fall, there was a congressional candidate debate near here. I think it was on Manassas, but it was held at a mosque complex. And as it turns out then, because to get access to the room, which wasn't for the debate, which wasn't in the mosque, a person had to traverse some area that was had been designated as holy. So that required taking off the shoes and walking the socks, and then you had to put your shoes in a little slot, and just like regular Muslims would do, the shoes then weren't returned to us once we'd traversed this area so we could put our shoes back on. So the rest of the evening we were walking around in our socks, and then during the debate, there was a break. Uh oh, we're getting close. We're getting close to evening prayer. So I guess it was the post-dusk prayer. And so then people were encouraged to go down and witness the, uh, the prayers. And you could stand in a certain area and watch the prayers take place. But that wasn't really necessary because on the screens, they had multiple screens. There, of course, all the prayers were, you know, uh, presented for all of us to see on the big screen format. And I can also tell you that there was food offered, but of course, I would have liked a ham sandwich, and there were no ham sandwiches. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Was this an official event that Virginia taxpayers were paying for? You make it sound like it was a candidate debate sponsored privately. No, that's all I'm saying it was. So it was a candidate debate. Right. Fortunately, we have different rules for the two situations. If it's something that the Virginia taxpayers are paying for, then they are going to want to make sure that um, uh, you know there, there are uh, there's one set of uh, uh, public available accessibilities, as it were. Uh, people throwing a private debate can do it any old way they want. They can require that you take off more than your shoes if they want. But um, the um, uh, <coughs> but the um, you know beyond that. Um, we have a little bit of mingling. Uh, seen every election day when we vote, at least in Maryland, vote in many churches, a little bit of intermingling based on the convenience that churches have a lot of empty space during the day and we need to vote somewhere uh, if schools are uh, not out of, out of uh, session. And the, uh, it doesn't bother me to um, uh, have a little of that practical mixing so long as there is not significant disadvantagement of people who um, could not step into that church. Now, uh, taking off uh, shoes sounds like pretty small in the scheme of things, having to postpone the ham sandwich until you went out to a diner afterward, an even smaller one. That's just my reaction. It really was, because there were some other things that happened. It's clearly not a free speech zone, which I think it should be, but it's clearly not. It seemed to me that the the balancing of the harms results in really you got to choose to not have it at, at that sort of a location. Well, and yeah, take it up with the sponsors is my advice. Gentlemen right here, second row back. This will probably be the end of it. 
Thank you. Uh, Carl Golub in TyndaleToday.com. Just if I could, uh, concerning your timeline of religious history, uh, William Tyndale, uh, probably the truest translation of the New Testament, uh, 1526. But the question, what's up with Rhode Island? Because at the time of the Constitutional Convention, each colony had its own system of paper money. Rhode Island printed way much more than everyone else, which is why Roger Sherman of Connecticut wrote the paper, Caveat Against Injustice or an Inquiry into the Evils of a Fluctuating Medium of Exchange. So to make gold and silver coin the money via our Constitution. So what's the association between Rhode Island, freedom of speech, and when we print paper money or political currency, uh, don't we get confused about what's important in all respects when we have a dishonest monetary unit of account? Well, actually, I was talking to Walter about that before this was the our session. conversation, almost the word. Yeah, that uh, Massachusetts blamed Rhode Island for the debasement of currency. Uh, you know, personally, I find that argument a little specious because people in Massachusetts didn't have to accept it. And it uh, but... Rhode Island was very good at smuggling. Uh, it was the first colony to declare its independence several months before the rest of the uh, colonies did on May 4th, 1776. It was the last to join the Union only because of its smuggling activities. It only did so because Providence threatened to secede if the rest of the colony didn't go along. Uh, and the statue on top of the State House is of the independent man, uh, not any individual. Uh, you know, I actually grew up in Rhode Island, but as I was telling Walter, this book started out as uh, a look at the home front in World War I. And as I was one of the figures I was going to write about was Billy Sunday, and as I, for the vehicle and the role of religion in American public life and just doing due diligence, I ended up with the original argument between Williams and John Winthrop. Uh, but what's with Rhode Island? I don't know. The Providence College hockey team won the national championship a couple of years ago. All right. It's time for lunch now. But before we depart, let me make the point that we will start the next panel at 145. Eugene Volokh will start his keynote address uh, 30 minutes into lunch at 12.45. Uh, to get to lunch, you need to go down and up the, the sp uh, spiral staircase to the second floor. The restrooms then will be on your right. There will still be restrooms here on the first floor. Uh, and then you will go toward the back for the, uh, and thanks very much to this panel, another very good panel. <laughs>